invite you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 7. John chapter 7. I was going to attempt to um, make a run for the end of the chapter, but I couldn't get past the next three verses that we have before us this morning. Verse 37 through 39, John 7, 37 through 39. So let's read that together. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Father, we thank you for just your hand of of providence and how this finds its way into our lives this particular day. We ask, Lord, that you give us understanding of really a profound truth, the imagery, the symbolism that is dredged up in our minds and looked up in the Old Testament as it's really undergirding the things that Jesus is there to say. Indeed, who he's there to be as he's making his declarations. And this in particular. So Lord, help us now that we would grow in appreciation for all that you have to say and may it leave its imprint on our hearts. May it even have the transformational efficacy we hope for to become more and more ever increasingly in his likeness. For it's your glory's sake that we seek after. In your name we pray. Amen. So it would really be hard to overstate the significance of this particular three-verse passage as it relates to the Old Testament understanding of God's overall plan for redemption. As here in our passage, we see a direct, unmistakable connection between the Old Testament Pentateuch feast days as it is commanded there in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch and their fulfillment by the declarations of Jesus Christ that he's making in our passage and has made in other places as well. So we want to take this time this morning to really see the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament with regard to what's taking place here. You'll recall that this is the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles that he's attending there. His brothers had tried to get them to go down with him. He waited. He arrives at midweek, you'll recall, and he was preaching in the temple. And we have now find him on the last day, as the text says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day he stood up and cried out. All of these things have great significance. It just depends on what the time constraints that the Lord has on us and any given day to look into them. So I would commend that study to you. It's amazing. You can spend a lot of time seeing how whenever the uh, Pentateuch was written, the first five books of our Old Testament, as we call it, which was written by Moses in 1446 B.C., So literally 1,500 years roughly before these things are being penned by the final apostle, John, uh, Moses is writing things that are coming alive in the Old Testament. And I wanted to spend 
time on this in particular because it just so happens that <clears throat> Friday night at sundown began the uh, Jewish Sabbath, of course, and it also began the, the first of the seven-day week of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So what we're, what we're seeing here is literally being celebrated by Jews around the world right now, Orthodox Jews anyway. They're celebrating these things. So we want to see what the word has to say. We want to understand more about the symbolism here, the imagery. Of course, um, today the Hebrew name uh, uh, Sukkot is used, which means hut. So it really means the same thing. It's booths, tabernacles, huts, um, whatever it might be. And you'll see what it means as we go along. So this was, is being celebrated right now. As I said, it's, this is the second day of Sukkot as they're celebrating it. And the event is also called Ingathering, the Feast of Ingathering. So there's a lot of facets to these feasts that, like I said, time wouldn't allow for us to cover all of them. But I want us to, to at least capture enough so that we see the significance of what Jesus is standing up now on this final day, the great day, the first and the seventh day were uh, a holy convocation. All of these things are significant. The great day, considered the great day of, of salvation, clearly that's what they celebrate, but it's also within gathering what's meant there is it's the, the, the feast of the first fruits of the harvest. So they're bringing in the fruit of the harvest. They're thanking God for the living water in their minds that produce the harvest so that they can make their sacrifice to God and bring in these sacrifices to him uh, during this celebration. So it's a seven-day event. And the reason they're making these makeshift huts or booths is because it's to symbolize what they had to fashion together as God protected them and provided for them in the wilderness. It was a reminder of that. It's a commemoration of God protecting them and providing for them in the wilderness. So these are things to keep in mind as we go along. So it's the wilderness wanderings, the, the makeshift places, shelters they had to build for themselves in the wilderness, and yet God supplied both their bread and their water. He provided for their sustenance. And so it's that reminder that God is a God of provision. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who will provide. And so there's significance there, of course. So you can find the description of it. I don't want to take the time. I was going to go through the description of it, but you can find it in Leviticus 23, uh, 39 to 44 is a primary text for it that describes it. But it also mentions an eighth day in there. So it was celebrated formally in seven days, but there's an eighth day to it. The eighth day is meant to be a day of rest. It's meant to be a day where the way they view it, the way they carry this tradition is a day when God invites them to stay an extra day simply to rest and dwell with him. So whether that's being referred to in verse 37 or not, the seventh day is the last day or the eighth day, we can't be for sure. And commentators go back and forth. They're sort of split on it. It doesn't really matter because what it has to do primarily with for our significance today and for who Jesus Christ actually is declaring that he is, is for our salvation. So the first fruits, the provision of God in the wilderness, all of these things are wrapped up 
The Jews would uh, take these branches and boughs, bows that they would find, these leaves, these sheaves, they would put them all together and they would uh, share their meals inside those little protected booths. And that's what they, keep, they continue to do now. The, uh, ger- the church in Germany that we'll be going to in just a few weeks, Lord Wheeling, um, it, the building itself is a structure that's connected not only with that Baptist church, but it's literally connected with a synagogue. So the courtyard is a shared courtyard. And in the courtyard, uh, some folks were wondering, what is this little, uh, they have it made out of like a cane. They have a little lean-to, we would call it, right? It's a three-sided thing, two sides of back and then a little shelter on it. It's like, what's that for when you have a, a whole building, brick and mortar, that you can walk into and celebrate? Well, that's what they... That's what they would go inside of and share their meals during the Feast of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles or booths. So that's the seven-day commemoration, 40 years in the wilderness. So they would take these makeshift uh, in, the, in the celebration in Jesus' day what they, when they still had a temple. They would take these bows and these, and these palm fronds, whatever they are, and they would literally build a shelter over the uh, altar itself in the temple. So they would have that built over in the altar and the high priest or a priest would take a golden pitcher and there would be this great procession. It was very formal. Oh, mind you, this is a huge celebration. It's a big celebration. That's the mood. It's a mood of, of joy because our God is Jehovah Jireh. Our God will provide and so this is a celebration of that. He takes the pitcher and he goes down to the pool of Siloam. This procession follows. He fills it with water from the pool of Siloam and they all march back in procession. And he comes back in through the water gate because that's when you were carrying water into the, into the temple. That's the gate you used. So they come back in and then each of the seven days he would pour the water over the altar symbolically. And now I want you to just focus and hang on to these things. We've got to move through them as we've constrained by the clock there. So, but they have, they all have significance. So this was done to remind the people that the waters that God provided out of that pool, you'll remember that's the pool of Siloam. So that's the pool where people were what? You remember the lame man? To be healed, to be healed. And they, they took that symbolism, they, they embraced that imagery, that that water meant healing. Get the imagery there. Because what we see in our statement from Jesus is, he stands up and cries out and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You will find provision in him. You will find protection. You will find healing. You will find, most importantly, salvation. So it's really, really quite amazing. But so this water exercise also was meant to uh, remind them of God providing water in the wilderness out of the rock at Massa and Mirabah. You remember that story, of course, which is in Exodus 17, 1 to 7. I won't take time to go there either, but you know what happens there. But I want you to think about something you may not have thought of before, and that is God is, is commanding them 
to follow him. God is directing them to go where they're going through the wilderness, right? By cloud by day, by pillar of fire at night, he's leading his people. He deliberately leads them to a place where it is arid. There's no water. And that's why it's called a place of testing. Not only because they tested Moses and irritated him with their complaining, but because God was testing them to see if they would trust that he would provide for them. So Moses goes to the Lord and says, the people are complaining. They're upset because there's no water here and they're thirsty. He says, well, take your your staff and go down to the rock and strike the rock. And out of the rock comes all of this living water. And they're satiated in terms of their thirst. So why God would deliberately lead them to a place where there's no water? Well, obviously to test them. He's testing them. Will you trust me? He brings you into the wilderness places if you want the symbolism for your own life to to test you, to see if you'll trust him. You don't see any end to it. Will you trust him? And that that life, that living water, comes out of a rock, of course, is significant. I think you know the significance there, but we'll mention that in a minute. So he wants to show them that in a completely arid land, that they know of a certainty there's no way they can get water and then he produces it so that they would know of a certainty that he is the one who provides for all of their needs. So in 1 Corinthians 10, if you had this come to mind, it's significant because Paul is mentioning this, this event that happened In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, he said, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They followed. They were following this cloud and all passed through the sea. Verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the spiritual drink. And then it's informative here. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and here it is, and that rock was what? Who? Was Christ. So this is a a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ in the form of, of a rock in terms of that's what's producing the water for them. So back to our verse again, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So it's interesting that during the feast, the high priest would pour the water over the altar, as I was mentioning, while the people recited Isaiah 12 and verse 3. And it's this. Here's what they're reciting as they're moving around the altar. The people are, while the high priest is pouring the water on the altar, they're saying, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is all, the symbolism all has to do primarily with salvation for provision as well, but primarily for salvation. They, they understood that. And so after this, the pouring of the water, the uh, temple choir would, have, would begin to strike up singing the Hillel, as it's called, which is Psalm 113 through 118. And they would sing this joyous occasion. A Hillel is, means praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. So they're praising him as they're singing those psalms and moving around the altar. So it's all very, very formal. The seventh day of Sukkot 
is known as uh, Hoshana Rabbah, which means the great salvation. Hoshana Rabbah, the great salvation. So this is the great day. This is, this is the, the main day. This is the last day, the great day. That's when Jesus stands up, the author of all of our salvation. So he's standing up. It could, it could very well be that this is on the last day or the seventh day that he stood up. It could be the eighth day that he stood up. It doesn't really make any difference in terms of um, how it affects us. He says, if anyone thirsts, notice the word anyone. So the call goes out to anyone who is thirsty. Anyone who, in other words, recognize that they have a thirsty soul, that there's something missing there, something they've always longed for and craved, and they're not finding it in this fallen created order. If anyone, if any one of you thirsts in this way, in this spiritual way, in your soul of souls, in the very core of you, then let him come to me, he says. This reminds us, of course, of Matthew 11, verse 28, doesn't it? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. So it's about that eighth day too, isn't it? It's about the rest we receive when we are reconciled with a holy God through his son, Jesus Christ. There's rest there. So not only being, having been satiated or satisfied in our soul, there is joy and effulgence of joy there. If, if you could, if you could be, attend one of these events, you're going to hear trumpets blasting. You're going to hear choruses singing. You're going to just, it's a joyful, joyful event that's going on here. So it's not a, um, it's not a somber tone by any means. So, in other words, if anybody has this deep emptiness, this craving in the pit of their soul, and you recognize Christ as the only soul's satisfaction, then come to him. That's the person who comes. A single requirement is thirst. Not some act of morality. Not some religious act. It's simply those who will confess that they're thirsty and see in Christ the soul's satisfaction in him. Those are the ones who come, and then he says, and drink, and drink. So this is talking about, you remember where we were prior to this, where we were, Jesus was saying that you have to consume his body and drink his blood. In other words, you're really consuming all of Christ. You're drinking of Christ, you have to take him, all of him, in yourself. What's striking, though, is even after all of the resentment, all of the contempt, all of the machinations, at least in their minds, to kill him, all of these things, he still is appealing to them. That's striking. That's noteworthy. He's still offering himself. These are bloodthirsty, murderous hearts. And he offers his own blood that they might come and be reconciled and be saved. So here yet again, he's appealing, he's offering this idea of crying out. It's that strong term that he used in another place. It's he's crying out to them. That's pretty remarkable when you see how they're treating him and how they're responding to him. So verse 38 Whoever believes in me, as, as the scripture has said, out of his heart 
will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's, there's quotation marks around that because that's derived from scripture, uh, the Old Testament as well. The Lord describes himself in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 2.13 and 17.13 as the living water, the fountain of living water. So we just sang this morning, come thou fount of every blessing. So he's the fountainhead or the source of or the ever flowing of living water, the waters of life, the waters that sustain life. In their experience, the wilderness experience, they would have died without it physically. Here, it's talking about eternal life given through this, this water that is ever flowing. You remember when Jesus sp- was speaking with the Samaritan woman? In John 4 and verse 10, he says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 13 of John 4, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, But referring to the well and physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Hendrickson said this, Here's another description for us so we can see all of what's going on here. On each of the seven feast days, a priest would fill a golden pitcher with water from the pool of Siloam, accompanied by a solemn procession. He would return to the temple and amid the sounding of trumpets and the shouting of rejoicing multitudes, he would pour it through. And now this is what I want you to pay attention to because I'm going to share, show, show you a place in the Old Testament That's referring to this. He said he would take it and pour this water from the pool of Siloam through a funnel, which which led to the base of the altar of burnt offerings. And the people were in a jubilant mood, end quote. And I thought, when I got to that, I thought, what's that all about? What, What is that all about? He's pouring the water over the altar, but it's going into a funnel that's taking it underneath the altar. Well, I have found a place in Ezekiel that may have been of some help. At least when I read through it in Ezekiel 47, I was really struck by this. So in Ezekiel 47, verse 1 to 9, it says this. Then he brought me back to the door. This is Ezekiel. He was taking, taken in spirit from Babylon to the temple. So he's seeing all of these different things. And you'll remember that chapter 8 through 11 of Ezekiel is when he departs from the temple. Remember? It's a really sad and heartbreaking scene. He says, son of man, look at this. And he's showing him the ugliness of what's going on in the hearts of man in his very own temple, the the place of images. So in other words, the place he allowed him to literally see their hearts as wicked, as idolatrous and all of that. And he slowly, after he digs through the wall to show him that ugly scene, he slowly departs in that series of chapters where he finally departs he departs out the east gate that's significant so now here we are in chapter 47 
remembering what the priest is doing when he pours that water of life, the living water in a funnel, and it goes underneath the altar. Now watch this. So this is Ezekiel talking when he says, then he brought me, this is the Lord, back to the door of the temple. So now he's back there again, but listen to this. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below. The south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. He continues to mention that particular direction. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Verse 3, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, and it was ankle deep. Verse 4, and he measured again, and it was knee deep. And again he measured, and it was waist deep. Verse 5, and again he measured, and it was a river. So this water is filling up as he's taking him through it. Ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep. Now you can swim in it. It's a river. A river, he goes on to say, that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. Life is growing up. You've got this, this river now, not just a creek, not just a pool, it is a river so deep you'd have to swim in it. Get the volume. And on its banks now are springing up life in terms of vegetative life in this case. Trees are growing up. So he says, he said to me, verse 8, this water flows, here he says it again, toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. Now the Arabah is an arid desert place down by the, the Dead Sea, right? And so the Arabah, and we were there, we were there in the 90s when we were in Israel, and I actually had the opportunity to snorkel in the Gulf of Arabah by the Red, in the Red Sea. So we drove through this, and it's just desert after desert after desert. And then you have the Dead Sea that is so alkaline, nothing can really live in it, right? That's where he's talking about. That's where this water's going. It's going to a very arid and dead place. There's no life there, and a whole river is coming and flowing, and it enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. It's going to make this rancid, alkaline sea into fresh water. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will, everything will live where the river goes. It's the point. It's the altar. What takes place on an altar? A sacrifice. What flows there? Well, obviously the waters of life and the sacrifice of blood, which represents life. 
When Jesus comes back, he's coming back to the Temple Mount area. And what direction does he come from? The east. The east. Zechariah 13.1. Let's pick up some other verses here that really capture this salvation and this cleansing of the water. On that day, Zechariah 13.1, on that day there shall be a fountain. Here we are with a fountain again. So you get the endless nature of it, the unlimited nature of this water of life. On that, that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So when you think about that river, there's no shortage here. It's not just a little creek. And it's not just a little pool of water that you're wondering where you're going to, wondering if there's going to be enough. There's more than enough. There's enough to flood a desert, enough to bring life into a dead sea. I will sprinkle, Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Wash me, David cried. Wash me. Psalm 51, 2, thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, they understood the significance of this imagery, of the living water, of the cleansing water, of the salvation. You must be clean. I must wash you. There's just so much there that we could talk about. Back in John, John chapter 19, verse 34 and 35, Jesus is hanging on the cross. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out, what? Blood and? Ever wonder about that? Hopefully not so much anymore. Water and blood. He who saw it has borne witness. Wow. So this is something not to miss. This is something, there's nothing insignificant, especially when it's set up like this, especially when it happens to do with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why would it mention blood and water? Well, that's, this is why. He's, he's the fountain of all living water. He's there to make that proclamation in our text. He's there at the first or the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's there at the last day of the Feast of the Ingathering, the Feast of the First Fruits. Who's the first fruits offered up to God for salvation? Who is it? You've got to make up for a lot of empty seats. That's better. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening. That's good. How about First John 5, 6? You remember this? This is he who came by, anybody know? Water and blood, blood, that's right. Jesus Christ, he came by water and blood. Don't miss either one. We focus on the blood and we should, but don't miss the significance, the importance of the water. Water and blood is offered up. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, he says. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, In our regard, and some of you, such were some of you when we were sinful and we were filthy because of our sin, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then, of course, Titus 3, 5 and 6, 
He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us. You see the connections? Do a study of that sometime. Take your Old Testament and use that as a source to bring the New Testament to life. Or you'll miss a lot. A lot of riches and symbolism in Christ. So notice, too, that believers are not a terminus. They're to be a conduit. We're not a a cul-de-sac. We're a freeway. It, it is poured out into us not to be held and kept where it would turn stagnant if we did, but it's meant to be given out through those that believe. Those who have had the water bring life to them, bring life, bring life to them, and then also cleansing, and they're to give that out in their witness. We, were, we had the love of Christ poured in our hearts in Romans 5, 5. And this is the gospel that we share. The love of God in Jesus Christ poured out, poured out, poured out. I hope we'll always notice when that, when that expression is used, the pouring of these things. Verse 39. Now this he said by the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So it's the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that is the Spirit of life that's given to us, that flows through us, that is given to others. As yet, the Spirit had not been given, he says. This wouldn't take place, of course, as you know, until Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 And in Acts chapter 1, we had to see Christ first ascend, didn't we? John 16, 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. He's about to go and give himself up to the Roman soldiers and be crucified. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. They were scared. They didn't want him to go away. He kept talking about, I have to leave, I have to go, and you can't come along with me. And we talked about some of that last week. They're afraid. They're human. They depended on him. He's their protection. He's their provision. And he's going to go away? I tell you the truth, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and justice or judgment. I want to say a few words about the significance of this, the Feast of Ingathering. The Feast of Ingathering, they also refer to it as the Feast of Harvest for obvious reasons, because it's to the significance is it's the first of all of what God provided in the harvest for them. So they're taking their first fruits in as a sacrifice. They're giving God their best. It's just like he does with the animal sacrifices. They give of their best to symbolize Christ, of course. Exodus 23, 16 to 17, you can see the explanation there. That's one place. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labors, 
of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So there were the three occasions, I've mentioned that to you before, where every Jewish male was to attend. It was, it was mandatory. They couldn't, they, you couldn't opt out of it. And that, of course, is Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles or booths or in gathering. They were to attend all of those. And so Jesus never missed one. He was at all three. Indeed, we'll see in about six months he'll be at the Passover, his final Passover as the God-man, where he will be the sacrificial lamb at the Passover. Verse uh, Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine to 30. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The first, now listen to this, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Why? Because he spared theirs, didn't he? The Exodus. Because the angel of death was commanded to do what? Kill all the firstborn male children. And so they were to mark the doorposts and the lintel with blood so the angel would pass by. So that means they were to consecrate or set apart their firstborn male. Not sacrifice him or kill him. That's not, doesn't, that's not what he means by give me. Give them to God in terms of the consecrating of them to God. He goes on, you shall do the same with your own oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. So the firstborn sons were given to the Lord. They were set apart for the Lord. You're going to set apart your firstborn son for me. And then they were to redeem them by making a payment, a money payment for them. They would be redeemed. I mean, there's just, there isn't enough time to go through all of the symbolism here. I hope you're able to grasp nuggets of these. Exodus 13, 13. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. How about that? Make sure you always know, or at least you are always to perceive, at least when my son came and was sacrificed, this should have been absolutely, abundantly, unequivocally obvious to you. You knew that your scriptures. You knew all these things. I'm touching on a small portion, and we're going through even those have, have to go through quickly. Imagery is all through the Old Testament, and not just in the Pentateuch. Not just the law of Moses, but through all of the prophets, you see Christ. Over and over and over again. Time just does not allow. Listen to this, Leviticus 23, 9 to 13. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest. Listen to this. So interesting. And you give it to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. You're taking your first fruits, you're taking it to the mediatorial person between you and God, that's the priest, and you wave it. You're giving it up. You give it to him. 
And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. How did they miss this? That's why there's also a gospel emphasis by Pilate, by Jesus himself. For what reason do you want this man executed? He has done nothing wrong. He's spotless. It's the only way he could serve as a sacrifice for us. All of this symbolic significance, the in-gathering also meant not just the first fruits of the harvest. The in-gathering meant all of my people from the nations gathered together. They came together for those three important events, for Passover, Pentecost, and for the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So here they all were. Where do we find that happening again? in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, so this is the ingathering of God's people. So those who recognize Christ as Messiah, as the sacrifice, will be receiving the Holy Spirit, right? because the first fruits have been offered. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That's why that's a significant statement. They're all there. All the Jews from, that had been cast out of the land of Israel during the Diaspora, when the Assyrians conquered in 722 B.C., they, the way they conquered is they would spread out the people that they conquered. They would take some of them back to their country. They would scatter them all over the place and bring their own people in so that they would be a mixed breed. And that was Samaria. Samaria to the north of Judah was a mixed breed. And that's why the Jews hated them. So now you have Jews all around the world, all around the known world, but they still have to go. They have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem on those three days. So here they are now for Pentecost. Christ has ascended. I must go so that the Holy Spirit can come. Like when Jesus said, you have to understand, it's good that I go. I must go in order for him to come or he will not be sent. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Poured out. It's like over the altar. Poured out. Ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, a river. There's no end to it. That's, we're supposed to ca- catch that because it's eternal. It, it always outpaces any we need for cleansing, for sanctification. There's no end to it. it. It's always there. It's always flowing. He is that fount, that fountain of living water. That's what he was saying to the woman at the well. I will cleanse you from all of the 
previous iniquities that you have committed with men and anything else besides. It's an inexhaustible amount of living water. For all eternity. So we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, remember, we're not to be a terminus. We're meant to be a conduit. It's to flow out from us that others might be cleansed as well. How can a people so filled withhold that from anyone that they truly care about? Well, we shouldn't. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. There's this whole issue over whether there's really a resurrection from the dead because there was such opposition to that by the Sadducees. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. So he's arguing that in chapter 15. But Christ is, in fact, raised from the dead. The first fruits, there it is. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's a New Testament euphemism for those believers who have died. They've fallen asleep. For as by a man, one, a man, one man, Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Look at what's being celebrated then. Even now, as we're in here in a Christian worship service, by Orthodox Jews who are celebrating the ingathering, the fruit of their harvest, and missing who it is that we commemorate here this morning. Remarkable. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Isaiah 44, verse 3 and 4. For I will pour water on this thirsty land and streams on the living ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows. You remember Ezekiel and the river of living water and the, the, all of the vegetation that's growing up? It's being repeated here. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. So on the seventh day of Sukkot, as they're celebrating it even today on that seventh day, they would circle the altar um, and they would say, Ana Hashem Hoshaya Na. Ana Hashem Hoshaya Na. Ana Hashem Hoshaya Na. Which of course, means, please, Lord, save now. They're missing this. They're repeating this over and over again right now. They're His people. Ana Hashem, Hoshayana. Ana Hashem, Hoshayana. 
What is Christ saying? I'll tell you what he's saying. You know what he's saying. We just read it. He's standing up and crying out, Let any man who is thirsty come and drink. Come to me and drink. People that want to kill him. People that are still to this day denying him. Come and drink. The offer is still there. You talk about patience. You talk about grace. How can you even repeat that incantation? What are you looking for? Why won't you look at your scriptures? Just look at them and understand the undeniable historical record of the Christ. It's undeniable. It's unmistakable. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, all the apostles saw it, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there's 500 that saw post-resurrected Christ walking in His glory around on the earth before He went and ascended to heaven. There's no question that these letters about Him, that these Gospels would have never lasted this long if they were not true. And there's many, 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 many more ways that we can support the veracity of this story. Anna, Hashem, Hashayana. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Kind, the people that has shown him nothing but rejection and hatred. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? It's not bread. It, what, you're, what you're grasping, what you're holding on to in your denial of me is not going to sustain you. It won't bring you life. And your labor for that which does not satisfy. How's that working out for you? The things you've cling to. To satiate your soul. How's that working out? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good. He's talking about Christ. The body of Christ. What we are about to commemorate. Here this morning. During the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Ingatherings. And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me over and over. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. He will extend to you. It's there. Why will you spend money on that which will never satisfy. Why? Revelation 22, final chapter, verse 17, as we wrap up here. The, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price from beginning to end. 
amazing grace. The eighth day was to be a day of solemn rest, as I mentioned, where God is inviting His people after all of that symbolism, which was to be replaced, of course, by Christ. But back then, the symbolism was important. Their joyous occasion that God has provided a way for our salvation. They were thinking more about Him bringing rivers of rain for their harvest, their physical harvest, so that they would prosper in material things. He's talking about salvation God invites His own people to stay with Him on that eighth day. Why? Because He just wants to dwell with His people. After He's taken care of the means by which they can have their sins, their iniquities dealt with. Then stay. Then stay with me. Because my heart is to tabernacle with my people. I will send my Son so this will bring permanency to the covenants. And you will have eternal life. And that eternal life will be with me. You belong to me. You're a possession of mine. I will never end my love with you. My love will never fail. It'll be a perfect love. A a pure love. The eighth day. It's interesting that it also represents to them repentance and a new beginning. Ana Hashem. Hashayana. Father, we pray for those who are your people, your people Israel, and all unbelievers, because as we learn from the Scriptures, This invitation is extended to all peoples everywhere at all times. And, O Lord, the inexhaustible nature of your grace, the endless flow and the purity of the river of living water. Lord, I thank you. As we end our time commemorating the sacrifice that was made, the final sacrifice. And Lord, may your people see that you are Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one who would bring an end to all of the temple sacrifices. You fulfilled all of the feast days, not just in attendance as a man. Oh, much more significantly, You fulfilled all that they require by symbolism. Thank you for that. And you offer it free. As your prophet Isaiah said, come, stop spending your money, come and receive this wonderful gift. I pray anybody within the sound of my voice is hearing this, that even now they would come that they would lay down all of their efforts, making their confession of all of their faults and shortcomings, their sins, iniquities, transgressions, all of it, and lay it at the foot of your cross. The cross. And it's not only bloodstained, the water flowed down. A river of life. It's become a great river in a vast desert land area in this world. 
So bring the dead to life. O Lord, redeem now. Save us now. Hosanna in the highest, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.